This is Nutshell Politics, a show where we discuss what you need to know about current events, international relations, political conflict, and my favorite topic of discussion, terrorism. The mainstream media isn't always the best at reporting on international events. They often lack depth, context, and understanding, a problem unfortunately driven by ratings. But here, on Nutshell Politics, I seek to fill those gaps, and most importantly, to make sure you know what's actually going on out there. So let's dive in. Hey everyone, welcome back to a brand new episode of Nutshell Politics this week. Thanks so much for tuning in. I really appreciate you guys taking the time to listen to a new episode this week. My name is Dr. Justin Kenny, and I am your charming host on this podcast. And I am really excited to be here with you guys for what I think should be a really interesting episode. One of my favorite types of episodes to do on this show is where we talk about people. And particularly when we talk about like specific people groups, and we've done this in the past. I did episodes on uh, uncontacted people groups. I did an entire episode on the Kurds in the Middle East as a fascinating people group in the world. And so this episode, we're going to be talking about a new group. Well, I shouldn't say a new group. This is a group that's been around a long time. Uh, it's a new group to the podcast, and that is the Uyghur population. The Uyghurs are a people group in Asia, uh, primarily in China. Uh, but we're going to spend the rest of the episode today, the entire episode today, discussing who they are, where they're from, uh, what makes them interesting, what makes them unique, uh, why they're important on the world stage. And then we'll take a short break for a commercial. And then when we come back, after giving my voice a chance to rest itself for a minute, we will talk about why they're important in the world today and what's going on with them in modern culture and their relationship to the Chinese government, which if you have been following the news at all of the, over the last year or so, year or two, uh, they have been in the news quite frequently because of the relationship with the Chinese government. And it's actually a pretty terrifying situation that's going on with this group, uh, this ethnic minority in China. But we'll, we'll talk about that after the commercial break. So let's focus for the first half of this just on who they are and kind of really just highlight and spotlight this one group and what makes them interesting. So the Uyghur population is a minority ethnic group, primarily in kind of Central and East Asia, almost exclusively in China. There's about 12 million of them in the province of China and sorry, in the country of China in one particular province called the Uyghur Autonomous Region, which is in kind of northwest China. Uh, there are some outside of China. There's about 200,000 or so in Kazakhstan. Uh, Turkey has about 60,000. Uzbekistan, Kyrgyzstan, uh, Saudi Arabia has some. We even see some in the West. Australia has somewhere between five and 10,000. There's about 2,000 here in the United States where I am. And so they are scattered around the world, but mostly they are based pretty heavily in Asia, and in particular within the borders of China. Uh, they are, they, let's say, they have traditionally kind of been in a region within that's called the Tarim Basin, that's T-A-R-I-M. Uh, they used to be kind of a, a group of independent tribes in kind of Mongolia and northern China, but around the year 842, those tribes had been consolidated into kind of a, a regional empire of sorts. When that fell in 842, it's 842, not 1842, 842, the the group kind of migrated from that Mongolia region down into this Tarim Basin, which is in that northwest corner of China. And they've been there pretty much ever since. 
Now, about 80% of their population lives still in that Tarim Basin. There are some that have moved beyond that into other parts of China. Uh, as I said, there's kind of diasporic communities scattered around the world, uh, particularly in other countries that share a similar language basis. Now, you might think they're in China, they probably speak Chinese. And while it's true that Mandarin is one of their most commonly spoken languages, it is not their primary language. Their primary language is something called Uyghur. It's the Uyghur language. And they speak that almost exclusively. Again, they do speak other languages as well. Being in China, they speak Mandarin. They actually, Russian is a fairly commonly spoken language there as well. But they primarily speak Uyghur. Now, Uyghur, the language, is related to Turkic peoples and the Turkic people groups, which is kind of a people group in West Asia, uh, kind of the Eurasia, the Caucasus Mountains. And so those types of languages, countries like Kazakhstan, Uzbekistan, most of the San groups, uh, the San countries speak variants of Turkic languages in the same sense that like English, Spanish, Italian, those are all considered Romance languages based on Latin. All of these countries, Kazakhstan, Turkey, Uzbekistan, etc., and the Uyghur people speak variants of the Turkic language or the Turkic language group. Okay, so that's where they are, language. Let me back up a little bit and let's talk about them kind of as a people and their history. Uh, now, Uyghur is a word, and you're going to have to bear with me here because it is not spelled how it sounds. Uh, you typically see it spelled U-Y. G-H-U-R. You will see variants on that. Some will spell it with a U-I instead of U-Y. Some will drop the H. The name is usually, though, pronounced Uyghur, uh, despite the kind of unusual spelling. In in its native language, it's actually pronounced slightly differently, but we're going to call it Uyghur for the moment because I don't want to try to butcher how they pronounce it. And Uyghur is the most common pronunciation that you will hear. But it is U-Y-G-H-U-R. Now, throughout its history, the word or the term Uyghur has had kind of a fluid changing definition. It used to be like way back when, like in the 800s, it used to be about a national citizenship or a national identity in the Uyghur cognate. Now, a cognate is basically like a, an empire. And the Uyghur cognate existed for about a century in kind of the mid 8th to 9th centuries. Uh, They were kind of a group of tribes that all came together, united under one rule in kind of the Mongolia, North China region. And so originally the term Uyghur denoted their citizenship as part of this cognate, this empire. When that empire fell, the term Uyghur was expanded into a, a definition that meant their ethnicity, their ancestry came from that Uyghur cognate. Once they migrated away from Mongolia into that Tarim Basin, they kind of assimilated with the people groups that were already there. There was a lot of Indo-Eurasian, or sorry, Indo-European speakers, but eventually the the language, the culture of these Turkic migrants that came into the region, the Uyghurs, they ultimately supplanted and kind of took the place of a lot of the original Indo-European influences and people in the area. From that point on the word Uyghur pretty much means the people group in this area. But it's not quite as simple as that because when we've looked at things like DNA analysis of the people, there are a lot of mixed ethnicities 
across all across East Asia, but also mixed in with some Caucasian backgrounds as well. So it's kind of a mixed ethnic group that is recognized in China as one of their 55 ethnic minorities. But up until, I want to say, kind of late 18th to 19th century, the term Uyghur was actually not used to refer to ethnicity. That's, that's more of a modern thing. It, it simply referred to, for lack of a better term, the ancient people, particularly of this, of this region. Um, they are one of the most ancient of all of the Turkic tribes, and they have existed in this region for centuries. Uh, so their culture and their history is tied very much to this region. The ethnicity side kind of came a little bit later. Now, the ethnicity itself is, as I said, kind of unique. It's a mix of a lot of different things, and that means the Uyghur population, the ethnicity there can have strong variations. Uh, there, there was a, a study done back in the early 2000s, I want to say it was, that showed they're, they're very close to kind of the other Turkic people groups, Central Asia and kind of Western China. There are mixed in with some Chinese populations, but they also have about uh, 60% European or kind of Southwest Asian ancestry. And then the rest of it is kind of East Asian, particularly up into the Siberia, Mongolia region. Now, the history of the Uyghur population is actually one that has a lot of debate and contention over, particularly between who you would consider Uyghur nationalists and the Chinese government under which most of the Uyghurs live. So Uyghur historians, Uyghur nationalists, tend to argue that the Uyghurs are the original inhabitants of this area with a long, long history. And as I said, at least goes back to the 800s AD uh, when they migrated there from the Mongolian region and, and as well as northern China. They kind of moved down into this uh, Tarim Basin. But even before that, there's a lot of Uyghur historians that will argue that the, the, the people group has a history that goes back thousands and thousands of years, maybe as many many as 6,000 to 9,000 years. And discoveries and, and studies of like uh, mummies in the area that have been found, you know, bodies that have been preserved over time, they have argued that it's at least probably 4,000 year history in kind of this general region with as, as high as potentially 9,000 year history overall. The Chinese, however, dispute this and they basically argue that the Uyghur population is not the original people group here that they are migrants and immigrants that have come in and taken over a portion of China and as we'll see that plays into the relationship that goes on there today uh, which is, is pretty awful and pretty terrible now from a religious perspective they are also a minority group in China in that they are primarily Islam now they're not not exclusively um, there are some kind of minorities even within the the Uyghur population, but they are primarily Muslim. And this has also played into some of the relationship they have with the Chinese government today. But they were essentially, I say more or less, converted to Islam in about the 10th century. And so over time, Islam spreads throughout this this region and spreads into uh, actually a lot of the different groups in the area, the Mongols, see Islam come into their region as well, several others too, but the Uyghurs in particular see Islam spread throughout their people group and has lasted for a while. Now, as, as I said, they are not exclusively Muslim. Uh, they are predominantly Muslim uh, in the Sunni branch. We've talked about Sunni versus Shia in the past. Now, there are other minorities as well. Uh, the ancient 
Uyghurs actually had a lot of kind of local deities, shamanism, and those types of things. There's aspects of Zoroastrianism that have kind of existed and been practiced in the area as well. A lot of ancient Uyghurs were involved in Buddhism and kind of churches throughout the East in that type of region. There are some Christian converts as well. There's a little over a thousand or so Christian Uyghurs in Kazakhstan that we know of. But Islam is by far the most common religion. This actually makes them the second largest Muslim ethnicity in China. There's another Muslim Muslim ethnicity in China that is a little bit larger, and that's called the Hui, H-U-I. Now, in terms of culture, the Uyghurs have a long history of literature, poems, epic poems, uh, those sorts of things. There's a a music style called Mukam, which is kind of the classic music of the Uyghur people. There's a like a national song called the Twelve Mukams. Uh, it's a, a particularly it's like a system of music more or less. They have a, a particular instrument called a, a, a dutar or a dutter. It's kind of like a long necked two stringed kind of like a guitar or a lute. Uh, you also see there's a popular folk dance called the Sanam. Uh, that's that's very common. You see it danced at weddings and festive occasions, big events, those types of things, especially for major religious festivals. Uh, you will see variations of it as well, danced in kind of large group settings. Now, beyond kind of general culture stuff, uh, you do see, for instance, a Uyghur cuisine. If you've ever had Uyghur cuisine, it's actually very good. There used to be a restaurant in D.C., I believe, that was Uyghur primarily. Uh, but it's kind of a mix of Central Asia food with some Chinese elements. Uh, there, you know, very commonly things like kebabs will be a part of it. They will frequently take a meat like a mutton or a chicken and they fry it in oil, add things like rice, water, and steam it. So they have a, a kind of rich menu usually around things like mutton, chicken, uh, they eat camel, goose, uh, beef mixed in with a lot of vegetables. Very, very common. It's, like I said, it's actually a, a pretty good uh, cuisine, too, if you ever get a chance to eat it. I know there's not a lot of Uyghur restaurants around, but if you ever do come across one, it's it's very good. It's, like I said, it's kind of a an interesting mix of, of Asian cuisines all blended together. Very, very tasty. Some good, good spice to it as well. Now, one thing you will notice with Uyghur men in particular is that, especially if, if they're um, Muslim, which, again, is most of the population there, Muslim Uyghur men will frequently shave all the hair off their head and then wear a type of cap, a headdress called a, a dapa uh, that is kind of square or roundish, almost like a skull cap of sorts. Uh, that's very, very common. Actually, the word dapa just means hat in Uzbek. Um, but the in the Uyghur population, it specifically refers to this one type of hat. Uh, slightly pointed. I, say, I called it round a second ago. It's not truly round. It has a few points to it. In terms of like the general livelihood of the Uyghurs, they are mostly into agriculture. It's um, a region rich in irrigation and cultivating crops. And uh, the Uyghurs are, are particularly adept at irrigation techniques. Uh, so they use a lot of underground channels that bring water from the mountains down into their fields. Uh, they they produce things that are very well known, especially in the region, in terms of apples, uh, different types of melons and grapes that are very, very sweet. Uh, they get involved a lot in kind of the mining community, cu- cultivating cotton in the fields, various manufacturing. 
And you'll also see some of the typical handicraft work that you see in a lot of like tribal areas. Things like carving of jade, uh, rugs, making rugs and other types of clothing, or fabric materials. And this is probably by far how most of the Uyghurs make their living. You do see some get jobs through the Chinese government. They have essentially affirmative action programs, although I don't think they call it that. Uh, but it's the same concept that we have here in America uh, for, for minority groups. There is a general, though, fairly strong language barrier. While Uyghurs do speak some Mandarin, their proficiency is usually seen as pretty low on average, which creates a barrier to getting a lot of these jobs. Uh, but you do see some reach out and get a job through the Chinese government through some of these programs as well. All right, now we're going to go ahead and take a short break. Really interesting people group, but we're going to jump into kind of their modern iteration uh on the other side of this commercial break and what's happening to them and their relationship with the Chinese government. So give my voice a minute break. You guys listen to a commercial and I will jump back with you guys in just a minute. All right, welcome back. Thanks so much for staying with me through that brief commercial break. Uh, we're going to shift gears a little bit for the rest of this episode. It's going to take on a little bit more of a serious tone because this is a really serious issue. And, um, the reason the Uyghurs have been in the news over the last couple of years is something pretty awful and pretty terrible that's been going on in China. And it's something that while you see a lot of people mention it, it just seems to go in one ear and out the other a lot of the times. It's something that we've seen groups criticized from the NBA, you know, who does a lot of business with China, uh, ignoring what's going on with the Uyghur population to politicians uh, who seem to, on occasion, maybe mention it offhand, but I don't want to say they just dismiss it, but they kind of ignore what's going on uh, because of our relationship with China from a trade and economic perspective. So let's... Um, like I said, we're going to take a little bit of a, a serious turn here because the treatment of the Uyghur population has drawn a fair amount of eyes over the last couple of years to the point where we're even seeing that. Actually, there was a, a news article that just came out. Let me see if I can pull the exact uh, October 7th. Uh, and so they, the UK, the United Kingdom, may actually end up boycotting the Winter Olympics that are coming up because of how the Uyghur population is being treated by the Chinese government. So we're seeing this start to grow uh, to the point where, you know, we may actually start to see some boycotts and actual uh, action being taken place. Now, a boycott of an Olympics is not a whole lot, especially when you actually, we're gonna, as we get into it in a second, when you hear what's really going on. But it is something that's starting to, it's, it's a movement that's starting to grow. All right, so what exactly is happening with the Uyghurs? So for the last couple of years, there have been, reports, uh, I should say widespread reports, of Uyghurs being held against their will or thrown into quote-unquote re-education camps, which are essentially concentration camps, and being under, being uh, forced to undergo all kinds of medical procedures, things like forced, con forced contraception, medical research projects that are very invasive, and essentially all kinds of things to violate uh, human rights uh, to the point where there are there is significant evidence now of very serious, very egregious human rights violations by the Chinese government against the Uyghur population. These re-education centers or re-education camps, I called them concentration camps a minute ago, they come out of some leaked documents. I think they came out back in November. 
that basically contradicted the Chinese claims about them. So the Chinese has been saying for a while now that these, these camps are essentially job training centers, that they're taking the Uyghur population, who, as I mentioned before the break, has some language barrier issues with getting jobs and offering them what they call voluntary job training at these various centers. But these documents that came out were classified papers that were leaked back, I think, as I think November, that basically says the camps are being used not for job training, but for things like brainwashing, uh, behavioral re-education, forced ideological beliefs. And there have been some drone videos since that time that have come out, drones that people have flown over the camps that show the, the Uyghur populations in these camps essentially being treated as prisoners. Uh, and we have seen more and more evidence start to come out about this. I said footage from drones showing hundreds of prisoners who are shackled, blindfolded, uh, being marched by guards through these camps. Uh, there's evidence of children of the Uyghur population just going missing in the area. I'll talk about that more in a second. And then we see evidence uh, and accusations of forced birth control as part of some sort of Chinese campaign to help curb its Muslim population. The Uyghur population, as I said, lives in this kind of northwest province. It's actually China's most western province, and it's a very politically sensitive region, in particular because it's the home of a large portion of the famous Silk Road, which is kind of a, a highway, I'm using that term very loosely, along which goods from China and to China have traveled kind of back and forth. It's a huge area for trade. Because of the politically sensitive nature of this region, China has huge trade incentives to be involved in this area. And so the Chinese people, let's say the Chinese government has been in modern times sending more and more ethnic Chinese into the region so that they have a higher proportion of the ethnic majority there so that they can get more control over what they see as a politically strategically important area. However, in doing so, China has launched essentially a campaign of repression or oppression against the Uyghur population uh, as a way to gain influence and to minimize the influence of the Uyghur population uh, to the point where, as I said, there are, there's images of hundreds uh, thought to be thousands of men particularly, but women and children as well, being rounded up and held in internment camps forced medical procedures being used on them. Children are going missing. And it's thought that over the last three years or so, Uyghurs have been interned in concentration camps up to potentially 85 different identified camps in this province, this autonomous region. And many of them have either been forced to undergo very dangerous or deadly procedures, uh, interrogation and beatings because of their their religion. And it's actually thought, there's a report that came out, I think it was from The Guardian, where there's an estimate that about 80% of the Uyghur population, even in far, far-flung countries like, say, Australia, probably have a relative who has disappeared into one of these camps, never to be seen or heard from again. Uh, there's There are reports of deaths in their custody, forced labor camps, and this is getting to the point where, I mean, I, I really hate to use this, this term loosely, so understand when I, when I say this, it's very, very serious. We're seeing almost a modern-day Holocaust here. To the point, I mean, it actually might be a Holocaust too. There's obviously some unknowns here just because people haven't been able to get in and see this. We're relying on uh, some leaked documents, some anecdotal reports, and some drone imagery 
as well as well as some people who have kind of defected. But what's happening in these areas is deadly, uh, abhorrent, and essentially a very repressive form of utilizing labor and concentration camps to oppress a, a minority group because of their ethnicity and their religion. Now, if that sounds very familiar. That's essentially what was happening during the actual Holocaust back in the 1940s uh, with Germany and the Jewish population, among other groups, too. They also went after several other minority-type groups, both religious and ethnic, in the region, too. Uh, but both situations have a lot of similarities that have been pointed out re repeatedly by people who have been paying attention to this. Now, Beijing has, has repeatedly denied any of this sort of thing. And in fact, what they have argued is that this Uyghur ethnic group, they, they've cast them basically, portrayed them as a terrorist group. And they have used that as justification to do all kinds of things. And in particular, what they've done too is they've taken some Uyghurs and been able to pay them employ them, basically give them money in order to spy on their fellow citizens, reporting any sort of relig uh, religious behavior, things like giving up alcohol, which is a, a big thing in Islam, uh, particularly in this area, anything suspicious, any illegal behavior, a Uyghur refusing to watch the Chinese news broadcasts, those sorts of things. Beijing has also in introduced uh, various types of nanny state surveillance type things, facial recognition, voice recognition, iris scanners. So these were all introduced by Xi Jinping after he implemented similar, actually he put into place a, another guy as kind of the party chief in this region who had frequently in the past implemented similar surveillance programs over the Buddhist population in Tibet. Again, Beijing claims these things are vocational training. They claim that they're trying to help this terrorist group community, but the edu their education that they get essentially is aimed at eradicating the culture, language, religion uh, through brainwashing and sort of daily indoctrination. They ha outsiders have looked at this and identified as many as a hundred like notable Uyghur ind individuals, things like journalists, professors, writers, poets who are who have vanished, moved into the uh, the population of the detained in these camps especially if they have spoken out against the oppression or if they have been particularly traditional in their religious or ethnic practices. In addition to these surveillance-type methods, uh, the Chinese government has also instituted a lot of uh, religious restrictions. The Islamic religion, obviously this can vary a little bit country to country, but there's a lot of Islamic customs about things like wearing a veil, growing a beard. Several of those customs have either been heavily discouraged or just outright banned in certain areas as a way to try to crack down on some of the religious expression of the local people. Uh, the Uyghur population, I didn't mention this before, but there's a, there's a custom in the Uyghur population, especially among the men, where they carry a, a very specific type of knife. A lot of that has been either banned or restricted to a point. They, some, of, some of those knives have actually been registered. You register your knife with a national identity number. You keep it tied down. It's, it's become a, a huge, essentially, surveillance nanny state uh, that has been keeping an eye on this Uyghur population to the point of rounding a lot of them up and putting them into concentration camps. And the word concentration camp is not a word that I made up for this either. The, many U.S. officials in particular have described these facilities as such. Uh, and for a long time, China just straight out denied their existence. 
but eventually they realized they couldn't deny the existence anymore, and so they they flipped and started this kind of propaganda push of talking about them as vocational training or re-education, where they could train them for, for jobs, to learn the language, learn Chinese laws. And in fact, they've actually even compared it to the equivalent of, like, boarding schools. Now, over the years, we have seen reports of people going missing. As I mentioned, uh, one, one report earlier was a million people. There are some who report on way more than that. There are all kinds of allegations of detention, conversion, torture, brainwashing, even murder and killing. The Uyghur people as a whole have been massively oppressed to the point that, as I said, this is bordering on a modern-day holocaust that, frankly, most of the world seems to be comfortable ignoring. And it's something that really shouldn't be. This, I mean, this is this is horrific. This is several years now of a minority people group, ethnically, religiously, who are, who are being exterminated, more or less. I mean, this is, this is not that unlike Nazi Germany's policy towards the Jews and the way they sought to ultimately exterminate them. And again, I, I don't say this lightly either. This is, um, this is something that I think a lot of the West is, is hugely complicit in. Not in the sense that that we are actively engaged in it, but this is something that, that's not mere speculation anymore. I mean, there's actual evidence of this, and yet you have, I'll use the NBA again as an example because they were in the news not that long ago, and they do business with China. You have people within the NBA who are you know, very frequently speaking out against human rights violations in, in the United States, but as soon as it comes to China, all of a sudden they clam up. They don't want to talk about it. They drop it because they get so much money from China. You know, people like LeBron James. I mean, I don't like to call out people by name, but LeBron James has led this charge. And then when when China comes up, he just doesn't seem to care. Mark Cuban, another great example uh, of one of these. Um, Chris Paul, he is somebody who has been very strong in pushing for human rights reforms here in the United States. China, not so much. And it's, it's something that to me is is very disturbing because a lot of times we look at what happened with the with the actual holocaust in nazi germany and the jews and we think no there's no way that could happen today you know how could the people back then have just looked the other way at reports of extermination of concentration camps there's no way that could happen it's it's just impossible how could this possibly be and frequently we'll we'll defend it by saying things like well they just didn't know because there wasn't much in the way of mass media back then. There wasn't social media. You couldn't get pictures or videos. You know, it was just kind of random anecdotal reports. There was no real evidence. And the evidence that did come out took too long to get to people. People just didn't really believe it. It wasn't strong enough. But now we're seeing the exact same thing happening. And we have all that. We have mass media. We have social media. We have pictures. We have drone footage of prisoners being marched, blindfolded, and shackled uh, through these camps. And people are still shrugging. I'm turning a blind eye, but this is a human rights issue that affects all of humanity. And if we don't speak out when we see something so horrific taking place, then I think we're every bit as complicit in this as the people who refused to speak out against the Nazis back in the 40s. And so honestly, I don't really know where we go from here. I think this is something we need to be more vocal about. We need to put pressure on our political leaders to do something. We need to put pressure on China. We need... Obviously, you don't want to hurt the economy, but if it, if it comes to knocking the economy back a little bit and saving a million lives, 
versus just kind of shrugging and turning the other way because we, we make money off of them. I mean, th- there's no question from a moral perspective what the right answer to that is. Again, I, I, don't, I don't even know what to say. I'm At this point, I'm just rambling a little bit on my own uh, soapbox here. But this, this is an issue, probably the most massive issue of human rights violations in the world today. It's shameful. It really is. I don't even know what to say with that. I, honestly, I'm getting myself worked up just talking about it. Uh, I, you know, I'm going to go ahead and close out the episode. This is something that you guys need to look into. Human rights violations anywhere are a threat to human rights everywhere, right? I mean, that, that's a paraphrase of an old Martin Luther King quote, I believe. You know, it's the in, injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. It's not acceptable. It's it's shameful, and we need to put pressure on our leaders to do something about this. We here in America, we have an election coming up, just about a month. Actually, a little bit less than a month now. We have two leaders who are going, two candidates who are going into a, a debate. Actually, the, the vice presidential debate is this week. And then we have two more presidential debates. This is an issue that needs to come up. Put pressure on your leaders. If you have a voice, speak out. Say something. This this is just unacceptable. Okay, and t- take a deep breath. I'm going to go ahead and close things down with this episode. I know it took kind of a, a darker turn there in the last half. This is a people group that is very interesting, has a long history, and is one that is undergoing massive human rights violations right now. So I'm just going to encourage you guys to to take a look into this issue. Uh, as always, you can find me online on Twitter at Justin R underscore Kinney. Please find me, hit that follow button. You can also find me on Facebook at J Robert Kinney. I write fiction mystery novels. I've got two out right now, working on a third, actually getting really close to the end of that one, which should be coming out hopefully before too long. I'm not quite sure on the timeline yet, but uh, you can find me on Facebook. Follow me at J. Robert Kinney. Uh, if you're interested in supporting me, supporting this podcast in any way, you can find my Patreon account online, or you can just reach out to me and I'd be happy to talk with you more about that or advertising on the podcast or anything along those lines. If you're interested in having me cover a specific topic, again, please just reach out in one of those ways. I'd be happy to chat with you, add the issue to the line. Uh, With that, I'm going to go ahead and close things out uh, the way I always do. So this is Nutshell Politics. My name is Dr. Justin Kinney, and I am out in three, two, one.